Good morning, church. There we go. Probably too much sound. It's good to be together this morning. Our lectionary reading brings us to um, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 16. I'm going to be reading uh, from verses uh, 13 to 20 this morning, uh, the passage for our teaching. And it goes like this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give to you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Lord Jesus, I pray that this morning you would bring these words to life for us. Feed us on your word today. And we ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had one of those moments or discoveries that just really shake you? Maybe a realization that alters your sense of what is real and what is possible. The ancients believed that the world was flat. Then Aristotle and his contemporaries proved that it wasn't. But some people to this very day refuse to accept that fact, and so we have the Flat Earth Society. For the longest time, we thought the sun revolved around the Earth. What a shock to discover that it was actually the other way around. When I was a young boy, I was intrigued by fire. I still am. My best friend's father was a fireman. I thought that was so cool. I wanted to be a fireman. Until I learned that a fireman's job was actually to put out fires, not start fires, I had to come up with a new career path. In today's passage, we come across one of those realizations that has the potential to reshape your identity, certainly to renew your hope, and to reshape your sense of purpose. As we've seen so many times in the past, uh, the context of this passage is really, really important. Timing for one thing. By now, the disciples have been with Jesus for, for over two years. They've seen him perform many miraculous signs. But the religious leaders have stirred things up recently. And there's fresh controversy about who Jesus is. His journey to Jerusalem and to the cross is, is months away at the most. And so we see Jesus pulling these 12 aside to deepen their understanding of who he was and what they were called to. It's important that they get this right. Now, Caesarea Philippi was a great place for this kind of a retreat with the 12. It was a Gentile town about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, uh, away from the Jewish crowd that otherwise would have been pressing around Jesus. 
The city itself had some interesting features. It was at the intersection of some very important trade routes. So it was a center of commerce. Philip the Tetrarch, son of Herod, established that city as his administrative center for his government. And near the city was an enormous mountainside of rock. And at the base of that wall of rock, there was a cave that was dedicated to the Greek god Pan. And Philip himself had built a temple at the base of this mountain, dedicated to Caesar and also to, to Pan and the other, other pagan gods. And so surrounded by the vestiges of wealth, political influence, and worldly culture, Jesus asked the disciples this question, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And it's clear from the next question that he's talking about himself. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Why this question? Is Jesus trying to get a read on his popularity in the polls? Is this the equivalent of checking your, your Facebook to see how many likes you got on your last social media post? Not likely. Jesus is setting up the disciples for the all-important question, and he wants them to seriously consider whether their own attitude toward Jesus is similar to or different than popular opinion. And he gets some interesting answers to this first question. Some say you're John the Baptist. Maybe news hadn't reached everyone yet that John the Baptist had actually been beheaded. Now, John and Jesus were cousins, and so maybe there were some physical similarities. Maybe they looked something like each other. Herod wondered out loud if John the Baptist had somehow returned from, from the dead to haunt him. Some say you're Elijah. Elijah was supposed to appear again before the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus himself suggested that John the Baptist was the modern-day Elijah. Some say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Someone sent to warn people of God's coming judgment. These answers are flattering enough. Apparently, Jesus was well thought of by many people in his day, just as he's well thought of by many people in our day. But not necessarily as someone who brings your world to a standstill. And then Jesus asks the critical question, the question at the center of this passage and the question at the center of our teaching today. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? Now, is this a pop quiz? Jesus asks a question, they rattle off the right answer. Jesus can feel good about himself for being a good teacher and maybe move on to the next question in the discipleship quiz. Hardly. This question is a game changer. He's inviting them to consider their own identity, their own future in light of him, in light of who he is. And so Peter responds for all of them, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Think about the implications of this, even for us. If Jesus is the Savior, the son of the living God, you're saying, first of all, that God exists. And this God who exists is not far off in the distance, too busy running the universe to pay much attention to us, to care what we're doing. Here is God, the Son, walking among us, 
entering our celebrations, sharing our sorrows, demonstrating his loving concern for us by healing the sick, feeding the hungry, opening the eyes of the blind, standing in opposition to leaders and structures that dehumanize us. By looking at Jesus, we can know that God, we can know what God is like, and we know what matters to God. And as it turns out, we matter to God. Now, if you believe you are standing face to face with the Son of God, you can't have anything more important to do. And when Peter makes this confession on behalf of the disciples, surrounded as they were by wealth, by political influence, by all the attractions of the current culture, they were declaring their, first and, their allegiance first and foremost to this Jesus. Nothing could be more important than that. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. This is a declaration that binds the unlikely group of companions together. Otherwise, what do fishermen and tax collectors and political terrorists have in common with each other? And it's a declaration that binds us together here in this congregation. Rail City Mission is a diverse group of people. Some of our members work in executive offices. Some work at fast food counters. Some don't work at all. Some of us are light-skinned, dark-skinned, well-off, and dirt poor. But we come together week after week acknowledging that Jesus is the Son of the living God. And hopefully that acknowledgement stops us in our tracks and causes us to see the world differently. This common confession brings us together on the thing that matters more than anything else. When we take seriously the confession that Jesus is the Son of God, there is a reshaping of our own identity. And I wonder if that's partly why Jesus asked the question. He's bringing clarity not only to who he is, but who the disciples are in relationship to him. Peter calls Jesus Son of the living God. And maybe Jesus is just showing a little bit of humor here when he responds in kind, saying, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. This was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And we'll come back to that statement in a few minutes. But here notice that Jesus gives Simon a new name. I tell you that you are Peter, which means rock. And on this rock I will build my church. I wonder if, while Jesus was giving Simon this new name, he was looking over Simon's shoulder at that great wall of rock that was a prominent feature of the landscape of Caesarea Philippi. Steady, unmovable, a solid foundation for the temple that was built at the base of it. Likewise, Simon, Peter, submitted to the Son of God, was like that rock. Solid, a dependable foundation for building God's people. Resilient in the face of hardships. Now, we don't see an instant transformation in Peter when he gets this new name. <clears throat> when he gets this new name. This one that Jesus called rock was prone to become a stumbling block, particularly when he thought he knew better than the Son of the living God. If Peter was anything like you and me, there were likely days before that event and after that event when he had thoughts like these. 
What am I doing here? I don't belong with this crowd. I'm not as smart as Matthew. I'm not as cautious as Thomas. Last week I prayed for somebody to be healed and nothing happened. I promised Jesus he could count on me for anything and not 24 hours later, I denied that I even knew him. What a loser I am. I'm worthless. You ever have feelings like that? There are days when I do. I identify myself as someone not worthy, somebody worthless, somebody who's a loser. But Jesus says to Peter and to us, you're exactly the kind of person through whom I'm going to build my community, warts and all. As long as you allow me to be for you the Messiah, the Son of the living God. You're no longer simply trying to make a way for yourself. You have a new identity. You're not a worthless person. You're someone that is valuable to me, somebody that I need to build the community that I'm building. And as long as you're standing in submission to the Son of the living God, anything is possible. And this we can be sure of. The community that God is calling us to build is something that will not fail. We read here that the powers of hell, even death itself, will not overcome it. This is good news. This should infuse us with hope. God is calling us to something that is lasting. Maybe you've been part of building something new and you weren't sure whether it was going to work or not. And you wondered sometimes, am I just wasting my time? But this project of building a community that acknowledges Jesus as the living Christ is not like that. This is something that's going to last beyond the end of time. Verses 18 and 19 in this passage have been a source of controversy in the church for, for hundreds of years. First of all, Jesus declares that on this rock I will build my church. Now, the Roman Catholics have interpreted this rock to mean Peter himself and have built a system of papal succession based on the primacy of Peter. <clears throat> Protestants, on the other hand, have interpreted this rock to mean the confession that Jesus Christ is the Lord, the living God. And the church is built on that confession, not on Peter himself. And strong arguments have been made on either side of this, and we'll not attempt to resolve them here this morning. Likewise, the matter of the keys and binding and loosing. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you bind on he in heaven will be bound on earth. Some see this as Jesus giving Peter and the apostles the authority to establish doctrine and the rules of the church. Some see this as Peter and the apostles having the authority to forgive sins and to withhold forgiveness of sins. Some see this as an action that's initiated by men, by the apostles, and, and executed in heaven. Some see this as something that's initiated in heaven and simply carried out through the, through the apostles. And again, we won't solve those matters today. I do believe that the scriptures speak to all of us. And when we confess that Jesus is the son of the living God, there's not only a shaping, a reshaping of our identity, there is also a reshaping of our purpose, our sense of calling in life. We're not simply passing time here on earth trying to collect as many pretty marbles as we can before we get to the end. There is a correspondence between what we do 
and what God is doing in establishing his kingdom. So what we do here actually matters. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does that look like? We turn to Jesus to see what he was doing to establish his kingdom while he walked here on earth. He healed the sick. He fed the hungry. He opened the eyes of the blind. He confronted those who mourned, or he comforted those who mourned. He taught people not to be anxious, but to rest in the loving care of the Heavenly Father. Those are loosing things. Jesus was loosing. He also confronted systems that took advantage of people. He confronted leaders who put on a big show but did nothing to help people who were suffering. He confronted demons that drove people to destruction. Those are binding things. And we're called to do the same kind of things. Not as if we're gods walking the earth, but in humble submission to the leading of the living Son of God and in the strength that comes when we bind ourselves to Him. One of the joys for me in being part of the, um, this Royal City community over the past year has been to see how you come together and give generously to meet the social and material needs of people in this immediate community. That's loosing. And our response should never be, aren't we amazing? But rather, what next, Father? Where is there more binding to do? Where is there more loosing that needs to be done? And maybe you think to yourself, how can, I involved, how can I be involved in this work of binding and loosing? I'm an old man or I'm too young. I've been confined in my house for the past six months. I have physical limitations and can't get around like I used to. How do I get involved in binding and loosing? One of the things I did while I was on vacation a week ago is reading through um, Thomas Merton's autobiography, The Seven-Story Mountain. And um, when he was a young man, he was, it was around the time of the, the outbreak of the Second World War. Um, and Merton was appalled at the misery unleashed on the world through one diabolical man, namely Adolf, Adolf Hitler. But he was drawn to all kinds of things at, at that point. He was also toying with, with the Trappists. And looking back on that experience and seeing these people who were called not to, called kind of off the grid, uh, living in, in solitude, uh, seeming having no relevance to the world, he wonders if Hitler is an example of the misery that can be unleashed on the world through one person. What is being unleashed? What good is being unleashed in the world through these people that withdraw and pray? We can all be involved in this work of binding and loosing. One other thing about the context of this passage is worth noting this morning. At the beginning of the chapter, the Pharisees and the Sadducees had come to Jesus, and they were asking him for a sign. Show us something that will verify to us that you are the Son of God. We don't hear the disciples asking for a sign, but they're witness to many, and so are the Pharisees for that matter. How is it then the disciples are freely able to confess you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and the Pharisees are not? 
Jesus says, this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I think the Spirit of God calls to each of us. But some, like the Pharisees, are not willing to let go of their existing paradigms of what God is like. They've studied and memorized. They have a highly developed theology. But their constructs were not large enough to contain God. Nevertheless, they see themselves as the final authority on what God is like. We know the world is flat, and that is that. We won't have it any other way. One of the readings in the lecture that we didn't get to this morning is from Romans chapter 12, uh, verses 1 to 8. And there we read, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. And this is how the transformation comes. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Rather than thinking that we've got it all figured out, we make room for new ways of thinking. We allow God to continue, re continue renewing our minds so that we continue to have a fuller experience of who God is as we actually let God be God. Where do we begin with this? Let me make a suggestion today that we take Jesus' question as a personal invitation. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? I'd invite you to answer that in a sentence or two in your own words and allow that answer to actually shape your behavior this week. Father, thank you that when we look at Jesus, we know what we mean to you. Thank you for entering our world, caring for our needs, challenging the systems that dehumanize us. Thank you, Father, for calling us into a relationship with yourself and for calling us to the important work of binding and loosing. And I pray, Lord, that you would show each of us where you're calling us to that work of binding and loosing in our families, in our places of work, in our community, our country, and in our world. I pray that we'd keep open minds to understand the riches of your grace, the riches of your love toward us. Teach us this week, Father, to live in light of the knowledge that we are attached to the living Son of God. Amen.